الجزيرة بودكاست. The World Wide Web. The invention that was supposed to liberate the flow of information and power people, we were told. Well, it has revolutionized our world, but how far has it really gone to bolstering freedom of expression? You see, access to the net and the free flow of information, well, it kind of differs from one place to another. Welcome to the Essential Middle East podcast. I'm Sami Zaydan. And in the Middle East, yes, you guessed it, many states are increasingly using information technology to suppress the flow of information, even surveil citizens and censor content. Our next guest is an expert on the topic. He's the author of the book, Digital Authoritarianism in the Middle East. Hi, I'm Marco Aaron Jones. I'm an associate professor of Middle East studies, uh, and I'm coming to you live from Doha. Well, not live, but I'm from Doha. Good to have you with us, Mark. Great to be here. Tell us what prompted you to write that book. Why did you choose such a title too? It's a good question. I mean, I've been looking at online activity in the Middle East for 10 years now. I started researching on Bahrain, and I realized when I was looking at the kind of Arab uprisings, I was getting a lot of abuse. And a lot of other people were getting a lot of abuse. And I quickly found out that lots of people and activists were complaining that they felt that they were being watched, that they were receiving suspicious links, that they were being harassed incessantly. I grew up in the Middle East, right? So I grew up in the Gulf. When we were very young, my family moved to Saudi in about 1988, just before the first Gulf War. And moved you to Bahrain kind of afterwards. always connected with the region then as well. Yeah, yeah. I am very connected. Um, I, I studied Arabic in Syria afterwards. I worked in Sudan for a year. And now I live in, in Qatar. So for me, I'm from the region. I mean, we can talk about identity and belonging, but that's another You're a Middle topic. Easterner. Let's put the label on you. Exactly. Exactly. Welsh, Bahraini, Qatari. Great mix. So you were getting a bit of harassment, were you? Online abuse when you started looking into what's going yeah. on. I mean, I was, starting, I was doing my, starting my PhD in 2011 when the Arab Uprising started. And my PhD topic was Middle East and social media. So it was, it was a really strange kind of coincidence, I suppose, that I started it then. And everyone was talking about the liberation paradigm. Technology would liberate us from oppression or liberate people in the Middle East from oppression. You know, you had people holding up Facebook signs. You probably remember. Yeah, those starry-eyed days, eh? I know, right? And even the fact you said starry-eyed, right? It's, I think it's a reflective of a mood that existed at the time. And it was a mood. You know, I call it like the honeymoon period of technology. And I think people just had a different approach. I think I'm cynical because of what I research, but I sense it. And a lot of the people I speak to in the region who use digital technology, people have become cynical, uh, which is sad. But I think it's a product of the things we've witnessed over the past 10 years of how it's been used to, to attack people. Well, how do we define digital authoritarianism? Simply, it's the use of digital technology to repress people, to curb their freedoms, to spy on them, to intimidate them, and to harass them. And more often than not, it's the use of that technology by states, regimes. Although I would like to clarify that when we talk about that, the people who were responsible for surveillance goes beyond the state. We're also talking about like Western PR companies, you know, tech companies. They're all involved in this process. So, Mark, why would governments want to use the internet in that way? Maybe we should explain that for people who are perhaps not very familiar with the Middle East and what happens in this part of the world. I'd say it's obvious all states are oppressed, but maybe it's not. The Middle East is comprised mostly of authoritarian states, which is states that aren't 
really functioning democracies, people don't have the ability to freely elect their leaders, right? And the implication there is that they're repressive states. So what we saw in 2011 and 2010 and onwards was the Arab uprisings, people going to the street to sort of try and get more de democratic governance. They wanted more say in their, in their politics. And many of them were met with gunfire, they were shot, because many Middle Eastern states, the regimes, they want to hold on to power. It's as simple as that. The thing I wanted to say is that states have tools to stop people changing the power, right? They have tanks, they have guns, they have policemen, and they're willing to use this. They use any tool that they can to serve their interests. The internet is one of those tools in the arsenal. It is, of course. Any tool, if it can be deployed in a useful way, will be used. Before digital technology, Sammy, we had, you know, the media. Media is always state-controlled in the Middle East. So you hear state propaganda. You're not going to hear stuff that's really critical of the regime. And you're not really going to see opposition activists on TV, right? So the internet was a new challenge for these regimes. From Tunisia to Bahrain, Syria to Yemen, and Egypt to Libya, people filmed their chants and demands on their smartphones and sent them to the world. They were scared because they knew that people could organize on it, right? And so they had to find a way to try and turn it around and use it as a tool of counter-revolution. And that's exactly what happened. Could there have been an Arab Spring without the internet? It did play a role. But we have to remember, in places like Egypt and Tunisia in particular, a lot of what happened in 2010 came on the back of a global recession. It came on the back of what was actually a lot of activism, a lot of work by lawyers. But at the same time, I think the internet and social media gave us the spark that was required. You know, the videos of the immolation of Mohammed Bouazizi, of what was going on in Tunisia, they really, I think, infused people with the energy, the motivation, and the kind of hope that was required. And this was disseminated and went viral. So I do think it was important as a catalyst. And I think it's hard to dispute that, to be honest. Didn't it also give people a way to mobilize themselves, to organize themselves? Yeah, to an extent. I mean, it depends if we're talking about social media, the internet. The amount of users of the internet is massively different in, say, like Bahrain than it is in Egypt, especially those who have access to social media. But yeah, of course, it facilitated organization. I think it's been a bit overstated. I don't think it was necessarily the most important tool for organizing, especially in places like North Africa. Yeah, it was important. All right. Is it an overstatement then to say that governments accelerated their cyber suppression programs after the Arab Spring or during the Arab Spring because of the Arab Spring? Oh, no. I mean, that's spot on. You know, when there's a threat, governments respond. And they were very quick to realize the dangers of digital technology. When governments eventually cut off access to social media and the internet during the protests, people continue to demonstrate. That's why we saw so quickly after, you know, early 2011, you know, the rise of bots and trolls. These are accounts who intimidate and harass people, doxing of activists. This happens super quickly. And also the use of spyware, you know, technology that will be installed on your computer. How did governments respond? What are they doing to people's lives now through the internet and through, you know, cyber programs? Well, it depends, right? Okay, like, if you live in, let's take the example of Bahrain, right? You're happy-go-lucky in 2011, you've got this hope, right? You use the internet because you want to express your discontent at the regime. Soon enough, what happens? An activist gets arrested by the regime, right? What does that mean? They get arrested and they get arrested because they're using social media. That has a chilling effect already. Other people stop using that technology. So that's a form of censorship. There's also harassment. Some people won't be deterred by that. But if you get intimidated online, someone saying, hey, I'm going to inform the MOI, the Ministry of the Interior, about you, or I'm going to harm you, that might also intimidate people. 
But then there's other, more nefarious ways of trying to get activists who use the internet, such as using spyware, which I'd be happy to talk about. But this is one of the most insidious, I think, one of the most dangerous aspects we've seen of digital authoritarianism, use of spyware. Yeah, yeah, tell us a little bit about the level of spyware, how prevalent it is in people's phones that we might not even realize, who they're watching, and all those kinds of juicy details. Yeah, well, spyware is, you know, software that when installed on your laptop or your phone, it will have access essentially to everything you do on your phone. So it will see who you're talking to on WhatsApp. It will see who you're sending messages to. It can record your microphone, your video, right? This is the biggest intrusion of privacy you can see. And we know that governments in the Middle East often using Israeli-made spyware called Pegasus or European-made spyware called Finfisher have been sending this out to activists, right? So they might send you like an email and in the email there's like, hey, in one case that I looked at, the email was pretending to be an Al Jazeera journalist, right? And it said, hey, I'm an Al Jazeera journalist. Here's a really interesting report on Bahrain. My colleague downloaded it and actually contained the spyware that attempted to infect the computer. Then that information, once the security agents get that information, they can arrest you and not only arrest you. Now, this is the key thing, Sammy, right? If you're infected, for example, not only does person have access to your phone, but they can see everyone you're speaking to. They can see your friends, your contacts, and therefore they can then target them. They can either arrest them or they can choose to kind of infect them with spyware. So what it does is create this network of fear, essentially, by basically targeting certain individuals, influential individuals, and then accessing all their contacts too. And once people have the threat of having their private lives exposed and known by the state, they're pretty quick then to stop engaging in activism. And we've seen this huge problem across the Middle East with the likes of Pegasus, right? We know for a fact that, you know, journalists are one of the biggest targets of this spyware. Al Jazeera itself had up to, I think, over 30 journalists targeted with Pegasus. So it's, it's hugely insidious. Who are the worst defenders then when it comes to governments in the region? Which countries in the region have the ability to use digital technology to suppress the populations? I think in the Arabic-speaking world, I think Saudi and the United Arab Emirates in particular are some of the big players. But having said that, we have to bear in mind that a lot of the resources they use come from the outside. You know, Pegasus spyware that they use is made in Israel, right? One of the most powerful spywares out there is made by an Israeli company called NSO Group. And the software that governments can buy is called Pegasus. It has the power to extract your contacts, your messages, photos, movements, and more without you ever knowing. So we have to look at the supply chains of this, right? Who's making the technology? Maybe it's another state. But who's using it? In this case, Saudi, UAE. And they have a lot of resources at disposal. But you have to remember, Sammy, it's not just about what technology you're using. The Gulf is the most technologically penetrated part of the Middle East. You know, the use, Saudi Twitter users is the biggest in the Arab world. Penetration rates of mobile phones, and by that I mean how many people actually have a mobile phone, is the highest in the Gulf than it is elsewhere through the Middle East, right? So that gives people in Saudi the ability to monopolize the Arabic Twitter space. So if you have loads of people who are super nationalistic in, for example, Saudi, they're able to get something trending far more easily than anyone in, say, Algeria or Tunisia. They can dominate the Arabic Twitter sphere, right? It's like having another media channel, but having this kind of grassroots media channel, which is actually kind of terrifying. Amazing. I'm loving where this conversation is going, Mark, but we've got to take a quick break. We'll be back in a second. Hello, I'm Charles Dance, your narrator for Hindsight, an original podcast by Al Jazeera. In season four, we carry on exploring the lives of history's most notable figures, from Rosa Parks 
to Pol Pot. We meet the people who changed the way we think about our world and those who left it marked by their infamy. Hindsight from Al Jazeera, wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back talking about the role of the internet in suppressing people's freedom in the Middle East and North Africa region. Mark, I read some research by a Harvard center that in 2019, they found that governments in the Middle East and North Africa block any content challenging state narrative, and they even extend that sort of blocking activity to commercial websites. It depends on who they were looking at. I mean, there's a lot going on in the Middle East, but most Middle East countries have this kind of IP filtering or website filtering technology that just makes people unable to access websites that are seen as particularly controversial or anti-state. I mean, between 2017 and 19 or 20, for example, Al Jazeera was blocked in Egypt and Saudi because of the blockade. So this is dynamic. Sometimes the websites on that list of things that are blocked changes. So, you know, this is pretty conventional censorship, I would say. It's easy to get around as well with a VPN. Right. Let's talk a little bit about the methods. So censorship is a big one, and that's a broad church. How do you censor people, Sammy? I mean, this is the thing, right? You can do it in different ways. You can arrest them. That's one way. When you arrest someone, you send a message to others, which can censor them. Or if that doesn't work, you harass them online. And where harassment, you can create, and we've seen examples of this, thousands of accounts will just attack someone online, insult them, undermine their confidence, intimidate them, threaten them. This happens a lot. It happened to Jamal Khashoggi, for example, before he was killed. And this happens routinely. And you might think it sounds trivial, but if you live in a place where you know that the penalties for criticizing the regime could be prison or torture, then this harassment has a much stronger effect because people know the consequences of this, right? There's even the strategic leaking of brutal videos, right? Most people would think that, for example, the government wouldn't want a video of the police torturing someone or the torture-riddled body of someone, an activist, to be broadcast, right? And that's what we saw a lot of on YouTube. If you see a video of someone who's been tortured, it's likely to create that fear. I mean, this is the same principle of, remember back in the day when you'd have public floggings or executions, the point was to remind people of the dangers of engaging in dissent. And that's what social media is also allowed, the proliferation of those YouTube videos of brutality to be spread, right? So this is a form of fear mongering and it's deliberate and it's strategic. There's also the creation of fake accounts. Imagine a hundred people sitting in a room all operating 10 Twitter accounts each to create the illusion of a lot of people, like thousands of people, and using those accounts to attack people, but also to promote state propaganda. Because you have to remember, it's when you talk about censorship, it's stopping people accessing information. But there's also like this idea of pollution. If you have a thousand fake accounts representing government propaganda tweeting on a hashtag, then most people are going to see the information being spread by those accounts because they're dominating the hashtag, right? So that pushes out all the critical debate, right? That pushes out all the controversies and allows just social media to be dominated by propaganda. So pollution of hashtags is a really common one. I think public humiliation is another one. And it's different if you're a man or a woman. You know, there's been a few examples of people who've had their phone hacked, their private documentation spread online, and then spread with fake news and disinformation. Like, you know, especially women journalists, they tend to be targeted a lot and accused of, you know, being slut shamed and having their private information spread everywhere. So these are other things. And obviously in a conservative region, these ideals of a woman's position in society can be exploited by, you know, authoritarian states to try and humiliate them and then discourage them from criticizing regime. Silence them, basically. Yeah, silence them. I guess we should also point out, though, 
the Middle East is not alone when it comes to this kind of internet surveillance oh, and censorship oh, no. activity, right? No, I mean, the Middle East is not alone. It's overlooked. You know, the point I make in my book is that there's actually a big focus, I suppose, in the academic literature on looking at what Russia's doing, what China is doing, to an extent what the US is doing. But it looks at like this kind of Cold War paradigm. You know, it's still Russia-US. But the Middle East is overlooked. And in a way, it's important that, like you said, we need to remind that this is not just something that happens in the Middle East. But actually, a lot of what's happening in the Middle East is kind of ignored. And one of the reasons for this is because some of the worst offenders, obviously close allies to states like the US, right? So there's this kind of, this issue is what happens on social media, the bad stuff that happens, the intimidation, the harassment, this kind of toxic use of social media for digital authoritarianism is kind of accepted by the Gulf state or in the Gulf states because they're allied with the US. What we saw when Trump was elected in 2017 was the him abandoning the Iran agreement, the JCPOA. And what did that mean? Suddenly the social media companies were being really kind of attentive to Iranian disinformation and surveillance because they knew there was US government policy was to sanction Iran. So we have this big problem, Sammy, is that what happens in the Middle East is not just the Middle East, it happens. It actually, part of the reason it is so bad is simply because of the political relations with these countries in the United States. That's fascinating. So depending on how bigger brother you have in terms of a global superpower, you might or might not get away with stuff at home. Yeah, let me give you an example. An interesting kind of tidbit is I've been doing this. I've been looking at deception and digital authoritarianism in the Middle East for ages. I look at Twitter in particular and Facebook to an extent. And, you know, I have a kind of fraught relationship with Twitter about, you know, the work I do. And they haven't really reached out to me. The first time they really reached out to me there, and this is interesting, was not about my work on the Middle East, but about my work on Ukraine. So when Russia invaded Ukraine again in March of 2022, I had two separate teams contact me to talk about how I might be able to help with tackling fake news and disinformation. And that's because we obviously saw this massive, clear support of the US for Ukraine against, you know, Russia at the time of the enemy. So they cared about my work when it was, you know, in US interests, but they kind of ignore it when it, I'm studying cases of, of US allies, which I think is super problematic. I don't know. I mean, are we going down conspiracy theory road if we assume that this sort of level of interest at some point might be orchestrated by state interests? Or is it just a genuine public interest picks up when a global power is interested in something? I think there's a bit of both, to be honest. I mean, I think, you know, the sort of support for Ukraine was pretty unequivocal in Northern Europe and, and the US, unless you're a right-wing American. And obviously that creates pressures on politicians who then you know, have to pressure companies into taking these things seriously. So there is that kind of responsiveness, of course. You just said, unless you're a right-wing American, how much the world has changed, eh? That is such a funny <laughs> thought. But anyway, sorry, is, I interrupted yeah. you, but go on. <laughs> no, no, I mean, that's a whole other interesting kind of conspiracy thing of itself. There is a right-wing Middle East nexus, which is also very disturbing. But yeah, I think there is part of that. It's not so much a conspiracy as it is an explanation of how the world works and what the world cares about. You know, I think, you know, there was some pressure on these companies after Jamal Khashoggi was killed. And the reason for that was that the Jamal Khashoggi killing, it did capture global attention, I think, for a, for a period of time, but a much shorter amount of time. But if you look at other matters like Israel-Palestine, you know, what goes on, you know, the apartheid state in, in Israel and the treatment of the Palestinians is it doesn't often get global attention apart from sort of periodic moments. But that same level of sustained, I think, condemnation of you know, Israeli digital authoritarian doesn't exist. I mean, if you look at the accounts that Twitter has taken down, and they make these public, by the way, 
the accounts that they've taken down that they've connected to state-backed, you know, propaganda operations, there's nothing to do with Israel on there. Although there is, uh, to be fair, there is, Saudi is one of the worst offenders. But there is a bias. I think there's a fundamental bias in how these things are dealt with. That makes me wonder then, Mark, is there such a thing as a digital superpower or digital powers? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, this is one of the things I make in my book, right? What is digital superpower? It's a country that can use digital technology to extend its influence both domestically or regionally and internationally, right? So if you have the resources, can you use these resources to spread your foreign policy agenda beyond just your state borders? And I would argue that Saudi and UAE in particular in the Arabic-speaking world are these states because they do and they have done. You know, take an example. Not only does Saudi have control of its domestic sphere in terms of propaganda and it arrests those people who criticize the regime. Let's not forget the case of Salman al-Shahab, who a few weeks ago was put in jail for 36 years for criticizing the regime on Twitter. And she only has like 2,000 followers. It's madness. But that's a domestic example. Although, to be fair, she was studying in Leeds in the UK and she was reported, apparently, using an app, a Saudi app, that's meant to report people engaging in criminal activity. So you have this kind of strange network. But let's not forget that an American jury found recently a man, a Lebanese-American man, guilty of spying for Saudi. Now, this man was an employee of Twitter. He worked in Twitter's headquarters in San Francisco. He was actually infiltrating Twitter to coordinate with Saudi authorities to send information about Saudi activists back to Saudi, right? Think about that for a second. Twitter's headquarters in America was infiltrated by a Saudi spy and a jury has just found him guilty. I mean, that is pretty, when we talk about a digital superpower, the ability to extend, or at least the willingness to try and extend that influence beyond your borders is extreme. To actually go to the, all the way of you know, infiltrating a corporation in one of your ally states, right? In your ally state. Who's selling these yeah. mass surveillance equipment? Who's making this software for the region? Well, one of the big ones that we hear about a lot is NSO Group, an Israeli-based company that makes a product called Pegasus, which is a very advanced form of spyware. And in some cases, it's called zero-click spyware. So what this means is that your phone could be infected with the spyware without you having to click on anything. Someone could actually just send you a message, and that would be sufficient for you to be infected, which is really, really scary, right? Because no matter what you do in terms of your digital hygiene and your how you protect yourself, it's very hard to protect against that. All they need is your number then. Yeah, I mean, that certainly happened in the UAE with Project Karma. All you needed was a number, and they could put a number in, and that would be sufficient in a way to target someone, which is very terrifying. It's lucrative. But you have to, you know, remember, this is a private company, but in a country like Israel, you know, this type of technology doesn't get sold to anyone. They don't sell it to Iran. They don't sell it to Qatar. So who do they sell it to? Well, they obviously sell it to people who they believe have political interests that align with their own. And that is pretty telling when you think about it, right? If Israel is selling it to Saudi and the UAE, and then we see that normalization between those states and Israel, well, not Saudi, but certainly the UAE. It's like a form of cyber diplomacy, right? Amazing. All right, now I'm not going to ask you to do anything big at all. Just bring out your crystal ball and tell us, where do you see internet rights? Where do you see free access to the web? Where is it heading in the Middle East region in the future? I think that's a really important question, but it's hard to answer in many ways. But at the moment, there is no, I don't see any momentum for something like the GDPR, which is like a Europe-wide form of legislation that helps people protect their data in the digital world, partly because in order to do that, you need coordination between countries, you need common agreements. And that's pretty fragmented in the Middle East. And states tend to just have very security-centric laws, right? The internet is a tool for consumption, 
for state-sanctioned communication. It's not a consumption for, you know, the kind of free access information. So if you don't have that mindset or if you don't have that political will, then there's no reason for the internet ever to change in the region beyond being a tool of how governments rule. Even in the developed and democratic part of the world, Mark, sometimes we see protests. I think like in France, they were protesting against the law about hateful speech and removing hateful speech because they're worried, activists are worried, it might give broader powers of censorship, right? Yeah, I mean, of course. This is one of the things that the internet has done. It's reinvigorated these discussions about freedom of speech. But the problem is, I mean, you know, 2020 hate speech legislation in France, you know, designed to curtail hate speech. Hate speech is, I think for many, seems like an obvious thing, but there's always politics behind it. And I always think in the cases of places like France, you know, I imagine things like in the US, Islamophobia, for example, will often be tolerated, whereas anti-Semitism wouldn't be, right? We saw what happened in the UK with Jeremy Corbyn. It's like this adoption of the international kind of definition of anti-Semitism means that criticizing Israel is often lumped up as a form of hate speech, but people should be allowed to criticize a state. Whereas often what you see is people criticizing, for example, Muslim minorities, and it doesn't have the same effect. So the problem is with this legislation, which exists in places like Europe, and it's becoming more common, is that often it's just selectively enforced and doesn't actually protect a lot of minorities from the kind of outcomes of this hate speech. So yeah, it's digital authoritarianism is something that is universal, it's global. Are we seeing attempts by some in the MENA region to try and buy their way into some of the powerful companies in the internet world as a way of control, really? Yeah, I mean, this has been a big issue since I think back in 2011 or 12, where I think Prince Walid bin Talal, he bought a stake in Twitter and he became the single largest individual shareholder of that company. And at the time, people obviously worried that would mean Saudi influence in Twitter. What we've seen recently with Elon Musk, you know, saying he's going to buy Twitter is a big difference in countries, including Saudi's public investment fund. I think Qatar also have a stake attempts to buy you know, become shareholders in these companies has obviously prompted fears that will create political influence and allow those companies to be able to censor what goes on. And I think it's a very real fear because at the end of the day, a private company is going to be responsive to the needs of its biggest and richest shareholders. And if those richest shareholders are authoritarian states, then we have a big problem. Um, so I do think it's concerning. Mark, this has been a fabulous chat. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot, Sammy. It's been great. Thank you for having me. And thank you for listening. This episode was produced by Khaled Sultan. The research was done by our intern, Nada Shakir. Got to mention our sound designer too, George Ulwir. And our engagement team is led by producer Ayal Malik and assistant engagement producer Munir Dusari. And of course, we can't forget our executive producer, Omar Saleh, and Al Jazeera's head of audio, Nail Vares. I'm your host, Sami Zaydan. We'll meet again in the next show, guys. Bye.